an agnostic professor of history and literature at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. True story, he begins his classes each semester, at least one of his classes, with the following exercise. He asks them the question, how many of you here believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? A few hands go up. A surprisingly large number of hands go up because North Carolina is still the Bible belt. Uh, okay, put your hands back down. How many of you have read, and then he typically will select a popular novel that is out there. Um, how many of you have read The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins? Pretty much every hand in the, in the room goes up. And then he follows up with the third question. How many of you have read the entire Bible? Zero hands go up. Now, I can understand why you would read Collins' book, he says. Because Collins' book is entertaining, fast-paced, exciting. But if you really believe God wrote a book, then wouldn't you want to read it from cover to cover? Now, the point for him is to uncover the inconsistency between what these students say and what they do. This particular professor, Bart Ehrman, he takes a great delight in undermining students, particularly Christian students, faith. But as far as I'm concerned, there in a nutshell, you have the reason why we're going to start a sermon series out of the book of Malachi. You see, Malachi, of, of all the obscure books in the Bible, well, if you've been around All Saints, you know part of the practice here is I will pre- preach through obscure books uh, like Haggai and Habakkuk and Jonah and Leviticus. Well, today we add the book of Malachi to that list. And we do so because God wrote a book. We, I believe that truly, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the, the servant of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Remember when Paul says that to Timothy, and he says all scripture, what scripture is he referring to? It's the Old Testament, of course. Now, God wrote a book. And, uh, well, that's why we're going to spend about seven Sundays in this, this part of it. Well, what do you know about Malachi? If I were to give you that on a test question, tell me everything you know about the book of Malachi. I, I suspect there would be a lot of white space on the page. I, mean, I don't know anything about Malachi other than he's a minor prophet. Well, yeah, he's minor and, and prophets are pretty difficult to make heads or tails of. Uh, Well, as we go through the book of Malachi, I think you're going to discover it's surprisingly easy to follow. The book is organized in a series of eight, six, not eight, six dialogues between God and the people Israel. In each of these six dialogues, God will make a statement, then Israel will basically dispute that statement and say, that's not true, that's not right, then God will at length respond and show them why he's telling the truth. It's a fascinating book. You get six times where the people of God argue back with them. 
Give him lip, much like a teenage child might give to their parent. There are 55 verses in the book of Malachi, and of those 55 verses, 47 of them are God directly speaking to his people. So it's, it's a very sharp, directed word that we have uh, before us. And here's the quick background on it. In the year 539 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, gave permission to the group of Jewish exiles that were living in the city of Babylon to return back to their ancestral homeland. At this point in time, Israel had been conquered by the Babylonians, who had then been conquered by the Persians. The land of Israel was no longer a nation-state, an independent country. Instead, it was just this little dot on the map of this vast Persian empire that stretched from Egypt to India. So the exiles take this this long and dangerous trek across the desert, returning to their homeland, only to find that the city of Jerusalem at this point was ruined in complete waste. They begin living in the city of Jerusalem, and in the year 520 BC, they begin to rebuild the temple of God, which the temple rebuilding project took about five years. And once it was finally done... uh, the, the, the new temple was a major disappointment. It was puny. It was poor. I read somewhere that the original temple that was built by Solomon had within it somewhere around the, the realm of $20 million worth of gold to furnish and outfit the temple. Well, this temple, it is just a pale, dim shadow by comparison. Remember when Solomon's temple was being dedicated, there, there was this cloud of smoke and glory that came upon, well, when this temple's dedicated, there's nothing. We'll move ahead 75 years later. The temple has been rebuilt, but around the year 450 BC, the famous man Nehemiah returns from Babylon, and to his shock, he discovers that the walls of the city of Jerusalem have not yet been rebuilt. Without rebuilt city walls, your people are entirely defenseless. They're sitting ducks. So he urges the people in 450 BC to take up the monumental task of rebuilding the city walls. Basically, over the 75 years' time, from 520 to 450, we know little about what life was like in the city of Jerusalem, other than the fact it was extremely dim and grim, and dirty, and poor. We know that inflation was rampant around the country. We know that economically, they were nearly destitute. We know that drought, and disease, and infestation had filled the land, and they were always being harassed by their hostile neighbors that surrounding them, always trying to get them in trouble with the Persian government. What this people needed was some pretty strong encouragement They needed the administrative leadership of a man like Nehemiah to help them get on task and rebuild the walls. They needed the spiritual leadership of a man like Ezra, the priest, who came back and at this time began to systematically teach them through the law of Moses. And then they needed the the prophetic uh, voice of a rabble-rouser like Malachi (laughs) to wake them up out of their their slumber. And that's what we have right here. 
Malachi. Now, Malachi, we don't even know, curiously enough, that that was his name. The word Malachi literally means my messenger. So a lot of times Hebrew names are compound words like that. So it it could have been his name, probably was his name, but it also could have been his pen name. My messenger has come. And he intended to be entirely anonymous. He didn't want to be known. He just wanted to be known for the word that he spoke. Malachi is a brave man. We know he must have been a brave man because he stands up in front of an entire nation of people and rebukes them and says, the God of the Bible is right and you are wrong. It must have taken incredible courage to live with the fallout from that confrontation. And finally, the last thing I want to say about the background is, what what is true about this people? They are, and I already hinted at it, but they are very disappointed in God. As far as they're concerned, God has let them down. They return to Jerusalem with sky-high expectations and hopes, which had been, had been fostered by previous prophets, like Isaiah and Ezekiel and others, who said that when the exiles come back to the land, there's, there's going to be glory and abundance and prosperity. Everybody's going to have the... They're going to live in nice new houses and everybody will have an orchard and everybody will have a vineyard and and life will finally, the glory days will finally be here again. And now they're there and it hasn't come to pass. Some of them would say that we were better off back in Babylon than we are here, which sounds eerily familiar to their forefathers before who said the same thing about Egypt. But, you know, these are... A disillusioned, disappointed, passionless people who are still going through the motions. They're still showing up for worship on Sabbath day, but they're not all there. I think that probably describes a number of us this morning. Malachi 1.1, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi the Lord says, I have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Well, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. He returns back to Genesis chapter 25 where you get this, this instance, this story of how the younger brother, Jacob, gets selected before the older brother, Esau, to carry on the family name and inheritance. And, and from Esau is descended this nation of, they're called the Edomites, and they dwelled near south of Israel near the Dead Sea. The Edomites were conquered by the Nabataeans, sometime in, I think it's the early 5th century B.C. And uh, their land was laid waste. They never rebuilt the cities. There was a long hostility between Jacob and Esau and by their descendants. But God says, I have uh, I've chosen Jacob and not Esau. Verse 4. Edom, the, na- the nation that was descended from, from uh, Esau, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. 
They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Later in this book, we're going to discover the specific indictments that God has of his people. And the list is long, but I'll just give it to you briefly. They're not giving generously. They are not worshiping wholeheartedly. They are not serving willingly and spiritedly. And in particularly in regard to marriage, they are not marrying the right people and they are divorcing the people whom they should remain married to. Now, God's going to go through all of these in the chapters of Malachi. But it's interesting. Where does God begin? Where does he start to, to correct these people who, who aren't giving generously and loving wholeheartedly and worshiping? Where do, you, where do you start with a people like that? You notice, <laughs> he starts by saying, I love you. He starts by reminding them of his love, I, his sovereign elective love. I love you, to which the people give this very cynical reply. Where they basically say, yeah, right. You love us? Yeah, right. How do you love us? I mean, you can kind of tell that it's, that's a rhetorical question. It's not as though they really are wondering, how is it that God, no, no, it's yeah, right. No, you don't. Now, if, if you loved us, things would be a whole lot better than they are today. Now, I noticed this back when we had the Paris terrorist attacks. How many months? Was it a, a month or two ago? But what I noticed, and you probably noticed this too, is we as Americans, we pay way more attention to terrible events which happen in Western countries than we do when terrible events happen in non-Western ones. So we have 20 people die in a terrorist attack in Paris, and immediately everybody updates their Facebook status, they change their profiles, etc., etc. But when horrible, even more horrible things happen in other countries like Yemen and the South Sudan, when 2,200 people die because of, of war there in a given day, it hardly registers in our news feeds. Why is that? Why do we... Why do we get so uptight and excited about Paris and we ignore the rest of the world? Well, I think it's simple. It's because Paris is a mirror. We look at Paris and we see ourselves. They're similar to us. And when they suffer in a certain way, we can put ourselves in their shoes and and almost imagine what it would be like for us to suffer like that. Now, the reason I find this interesting or, or significant is some, I was on Facebook earlier this week, and I, somebody had a, posted a picture of Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The, the man is walking down the street with his one oxen that he owns, pulling a wooden cart, which is probably the only type of transportation that he has, through a dirt road that is completely unpaved, and you just look around and you see there's nothing but dirt and filth and refuse surrounding him. And that is a world that is an alternative universe for us. Well, we can't even imagine what life would be like. That's not a mirror. That is a parallel. That's a, that's a different universe. And that man, as he walks through life, he's just hoping that his family doesn't get robbed. 
He's hoping that his children don't starve and, uh, and they don't get sick. And if they do, well, that's just what happens to people like that. Uh, that happens every day to, to people like that. When we travel back through the time machine to 5th century B.C. Israel, what you need to be thinking of is, uh, these people have it really bad. This is Ethiopia. This is not Paris. This is a people who's looking around and saying, life, it, this life stinks. Except they're saying it much more sharply. I mean, I look around and <laughs> look at economically where we are at and look at socially. This, this life is, is a complete dump. And if God loved us, I know that no father would treat his children this way. Things would not be this bad. And, and shoot, Isaiah, Isaiah and Ezekiel and all the other prophets, they got our hopes and expectations up. They promised us something better. And if God loved us, wouldn't there at least be a little bit of glory and a little bit of prosperity? Love my foot. I, I hope that we, do you see how you can sympathize with their response here when God professes his love for them? On one hand, that's my goal. One hand is just to help you think sympathetically for where they are at. But then there's this ironic other perspective. The other perspective is, of all the people in the world to complain about the love of God, Israel is complaining about the love of God. After all that God had done for them, after you know, taking Abraham out, of the Ur of the Chaldees as a moon-worshipping pagan who wanted nothing to do with the Lord after choosing the younger son, Jacob, instead of the older son, Esau, out of the exodus and slavery and Red Sea and promised land. I mean, after all of that, after, after David and the monarchy, of all the things that God had done to love this people, and here it is, you are complaining and doubting the love of God? You are fools, to do that. Here's the point of connection we have with them. This is how we are like them. It's in this respect that you and I can, we always have the opportunity to look at our lives and to say, this sucks. We always have the opportunity, especially when things are bad, to go through and chronicle the list of all the ways that my life is not, that, that is not what it's supposed to be. Um, God doesn't love me. I can tell you all the different ways that I know he doesn't love me. We always have this opportunity to look at the world through that lens and say, yeah, right. But then on the other perspective, we as Christians, we, we always have the opportunity to look at our life in the world and say, how dare I ever question his love? After all that he's done for me in Christ. I mean, blood-bought, chosen before the foundations of the world. Uh, you know, all of the stuff that, the wonderful stuff that Brian Fry was preaching about last week, about the assurance of the, of the love of God. We, we always have the opportunity to, that's the point. Each day of your life, you're given the opportunity to doubt God's love and call him a liar. And each day of your life, there's an opportunity to live by faith in the gospel, what he has done for you, looking back to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, and not by sight at your present 
circumstances. You always have that, and um, in that respect, we are like them. So that's number one. Secondly, number two. There's an old world word, world word you've maybe heard before. It's the word called called acedia. A c e d i a, acedia. Back in the days when there were monks under the Benedictine rule, under Saint Benedict, monks spent a fair amount of their time performing manual labor in the garden or in the workshop. Acedia was the word they used to describe the monk who who wouldn't go outside. All he wanted to do was to remain in his his cell. Uh, Acedia. Um, We translate, we don't use that word anymore, we translate it as laziness or as slothfulness. But the the monk's book of Acedia, and I like it as a word because instead of characterizing mere behavior, Acedia reflects, It characterizes an internal condition within us. The monk said this, Acedia is a weariness of the soul. Acedia is a listless, lifelessness of the soul. The reason that somebody stays on the couch and watches 40 consecutive episodes on Hulu is not, we say it's because they're lazy. No, no, the the monks would look deeper and say that it's not laziness. The laziness is just symptomatic of the blah within, of the the, the drudgery, almost the disgust one feels toward all of life. It's a, a weariness of soul that drives us down the path of least resistance. So another example, a lot of us don't go to the gym. We don't exercise the way that we know that we ought to do. Is it because we're just lazy, we're giant sloths? No, it's, it's actually, you look a little deeper and you find it's because we're embarrassed by our own lack of fitness. And when we go to the gym, we feel really self-conscious and embarrassed, kind of like fish out of water. And, you know, so we tell ourselves these silly justifications like, well, I don't want to go to the gym because I don't know how to operate the machines or you know, some lame excuse. But... We pursue the path of least resistance. Why? Acedia. Acedia keeps us from pursuing those things we know that are good, but take resolve to achieve because they're very difficult. Acedia, another way of putting it, acedia, eventually we stop paying attention to that little voice inside of our head that says, you you really ought to, you ought to do this. I mean, eventually, you just drown that little voice out. So I, I don't hear you anymore. So the acedia keeps us from pursuing those things we know that, that are good. Okay, why have I gone off on this long tangent? Well, I mean, I can't go in a time machine. I, I don't know exactly what 5th century Israel was like. But based on all the reading I've done this past week, I think that I have accurately described to you these, this people. And I, again, I understand why they would feel this way. They thought they were going to Paris. And the plane touches down in Africa. They thought that they were, they thought they were headed to the Eiffel Tower. And they're in Darfur. And I'm sure these people prayed. 
I'm sure they prayed so many times till they were blue in the face that God would change things and make things different. All of those unanswered prayers, you can relate to this. The unanswered prayers, the disappointment with the unanswered prayers, it begins to just create scar tissue inside of you. I've heard it referred to this way. Acedia is like scar tissue that builds up around your heart because of all of the disappointment. Isn't that a powerful... Scar tissue around your soul so that you're no longer able to, to feel anything any longer. And so you give up on your pursuit of God. When you feel so lifeless and so dull and so blah inside. I mean, who... Who wants to hunger and thirst after righteousness when you have little, nothing left in the tank? That describes the people in Malachi's day. So again, going back to the earlier question, how does God try to reach them? Later on in the book, he's going to be yelling at them. He's going to be screaming in their face, wake up, wake up, wake up which is an appropriate way to talk to somebody who, let's say, has taken too many sleeping pills. Somebody who's tried to commit suicide and is lying on the floor. You start to slap them across the face and you yell at them, wake up, and you, you try to rush them to the hospital. So God will be very confrontational in this book, yelling, and sometimes we'll think that he's being cruel and unfair, but you have to understand, it's, he's, he's yelling. But here he starts up by saying... Um, I love you. And he, he argues for his love in a rather peculiar way. He argues for his love by talking about how he hates Esau and Esau will remain under his wrath forever. We think, well, how does the God of love justify love by talking about hate and wrath? It doesn't, make a, doesn't that seem a little bipolar to us? It's kind of hard to... I'm not going to go into verses four through five so much this morning. But I promise I'll deal with the issue. I promise that one of the sermons that I preach on this, will I'll try my best to deal with what people sometimes have described as the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. The God who's cranky and hateful and cruel and the God who's loving and generous and kind. And, and why does it seem to us like there's some bipolarity in God? I will, I'll try my best to answer that question. The only thing I'd say about Edom is they were guilty of many cruelties and, dare I say, atrocities against the people of Israel. So when God says that that they are going to be under my judgment, at least give God the benefit of the doubt. God, he understands what a people group deserves and has he's seen everything that they have done. So even though it may look to us Unfair? I mean, come on. We're 2,500 years into the future. It's a, little, it's a little unfair for us to play armchair quarterback two and a half millennia later, right? So just know that. And also know when it speaks about his wrath, the Bible is unmistakable in the belief that the only people who suffer God's wrath is those that categorically reject him. Like, there's not going to be a single innocent person on the final day of judgment. His wrath is always reserved for those who shake their fist at him. 
let me finish by, I'm going to talk to two types of disappointed people. Two types of disappointed people. First, the angry one. Have you ever had an argument with one of your children where you, you're frustrated, you point your finger at them and, and say effectively, your attitude stinks, and they take their finger and point it back at you and say, the reason my attitude stinks is because my life stinks. Because my parents stinks. Because, if I, because my circumstances stink. And if I had a life where you know, my parent was providing better for me and, and things were going better for me at, at school and you know, on and on, if you would give me a better life, then I would have a better attitude. <laughs> you ever been in a conversation like that before? It doesn't go very far. <laughs> but it really hurts. I haven't had this conversation, <laughs> thankfully. It may, it may be coming in, the, in future years. But, but it really hurts to look at your parent and, and say that you don't love me. And to throw it back in their face. We, we know that... As a parent, you have to absorb a lot of hurt to maintain a relationship with an angry child. What do you think? Do you think it hurt God for him to hear from his people, you don't love me? You haven't taken care of me? You haven't provided for me? How have you loved? Yeah, it must have really hurt his heart. But he was willing to hear it. That's incredible. Even more than he was willing to hear it, he was willing to record it. So that 2,500 years later, it would have gotten replayed again and again and again, read by people out loud, read in churches, studied by people, kind of bringing up, say, those old old wounds. But the, the Lord is willing to endure a lot of pain for his kids. And if you're, you're really, you're an angry, disappointed person today, I just want you to get a picture of what you're doing. You're sitting on your father's lap, And your father's like, I love you, I love you. Look at all that I provided for you. Look at all that I have done for you. And you're just slap him across the face. No, you don't. You think that doesn't hurt? But he's willing to take it. He's willing to stay in the conversation. The second disappointed person I want to talk to is, is the one that I was referring to in the middle section. The one who is the lifeless disappointed person, the one who has been gripped with acedia, the one who says, it doesn't feel like God loves me. I know that God says that he loves me. Then why are things so hard for me? Why am I so broke today? Why are things going so, so badly for me today? And internally, you've got the scar tissue built up around your heart, and you just, you don't feel anything. You are the one, I think the, the book of Malachi is especially addressed to. And you are the one, you've actually got it worse. You're in a more dangerous spot than the angry person. Because you can't feel anything anymore. You hear the words, I love you, and you don't feel anything. It's just dead and dull inside. And yet you're still here on Sunday morning. You got up to come to an 8.30 service. On Memorial Day weekend, you came in to, but you're, but you're cold, you're dead, you're lifeless, you're listless, you're apathetic. You don't, there's no excitement, there's, there's none of that. And my prayer, I know that I can't fix you in one sermon. 
there'll be at least seven or six or seven of these where I just pray that the Holy Spirit would chip away at that scar tissue and help you to feel again, to feel the love again. Last, if I were to summarize the, book, the message of the book of Malachi, it's this, that in light of God's infinite, unchanging love for his people, they are to repent of half-hearted devotion, and they are to seek him with authentic enthusiasm, which will evidence itself in all areas of life. Got that down written? (laughs) In light of God's infinite, unchanging love for his people, they are to repent of half-hearted devotion and seek him with authentic enthusiasm, which will evidence itself in all areas of life. May God make it so. That's what we're going to be covering over the next several weeks. Amen.